Hey, Leslie, how are you doing? I'm doing so well, and I'm so honored to be with you tonight, Alex. Thank you so much for the invitation. Not only is it a pleasure, but it's such a humbling... I repeat that every single episode, but, you know, like, I I, I, I have, you know, I, I need the listeners to understand that, you know, like, this was not in my plan. You know, like my plan, and I just told you that just before we started recording, my plan was actually to be to have friends and friends of friends to share their stories. Like, and all of a sudden, I put my name quite casually in, you know, like some of these, you know, you know, am I a good podcast for you guesting on? And and all of a sudden, I'm booked like six months in advance. You know, like just crazy journey for me. It it it, it fills me. And I know that it does fills um, it does fill my listeners, but you know, like the the honored and humbled and 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 flattered and and happy are all emotions that go. You know, like I don't know you, Leslie, and you know, like there's kind of a strangers that the stranger that reaches out to me and say, "Hey, Alex, I would be willing and be happy to be part of your podcast." I'm like, "What?" You know, like it's <laughs> it's I a hear you. <laughs> crazy experience for me so um i'm gonna hit the ground running um i i've been asking the same question for the last year and a half and uh my listeners i'm guess are you know i'm guessing they're not too tired of hearing that same question because we're all in it but you know like the question is a bit of a twofold one where are you located and how has been the pandemic going for you Oh, what great questions. Thank you. I am located in Southern California. I actually am a native Los Angelino, which is unusual. And I am in the San Fernando Valley part of Southern California. And I am happy to say that um, I'm healthy and well, as is my family, from having walked through this time of uh, grieving and difficulty for all of us across the nation and around the globe. And the pandemic for me was um, in during the pandemic, Alex, I was able because of the work about which I shared with you before we began recording that I'm passionate about, and which I would love to share with your listeners, because I work with grief recovery, and so much of what we walked through with the pandemic was about grieving loss of every kind uh, as a collective group of people around, uh, across California, across the nation, and around the globe. I actually had my private practice, my virtual private practice, increase because people are reaching out about the losses that they're walking through during the last year and a half. And so I feel honored to be part of the solution for that and to offer something that is so empowering for anyone who is an adult and who's walking through a current loss or a past loss and wants and is motivated to heal. And the, 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 the one of the reasons why I do ask the question is, um, have you seen kind of a rise in depression, um, you know, like instead, you know, like in, in, in the, in the subject of, you know, uh, substance abuse, um, a rise in, in, in those or relapses, um, I, you know, like, have you, have you seen, because, you know, like my, my, my theory is that, you know, like we're going to be 
you know, like whatever wave we finish on, you know, like we're what third, fourth, fifth wave, you know, like I, I, I've stopped counting, but um, I have a, a gr- big feeling that there's going to be a lot of PTSD going on after that, you know, like the aftermath of that pandemic is going to be, I think, even worse in some cases than, you know, like the, the, the sickness itself, you know, like, so have you, have you witnessed that? Yes, absolutely. I so appreciate the authenticity of your question, Alex, because I have uh, one day a week where I work as a grief counselor at a local detox center in my area. And the statistics in the last year across the country because of the pandemic are 30% higher in suicide rate the rate of recidivism with use of alcohol drugs is high. I don't know the percentage of rate of, of how it's um, transformed to a bitter uh, number to tell you that. But I know that from the staff at the facility where I offer my service, that the rate of recidivism is high. The fact of the pandemic which is common to all of us, has been that absolute isolation from our, our normal social lives. And grievers are awesome for, and yet when I say awesome, I mean it's a, it's a problem that grievers will isolate when we're sad. It's just a normal thing that we unfortunately do, and that has caused great depression and great recidivism because when we are grieving, the antidote to loss of any kind is participation. Whether it's working with me as a specialist for the program I teach one-on-one, or it's being in a group, working with other people about losing someone we loved, or the fact is, Alex, there are over 40 different types of loss that we can have in a lifetime. And when I am speaking with a group, say I'm talking with a group of colleagues or therapists or other practitioners in mental health, or I'm talking with a group at the detox center, and I'll say, what do you think in Western culture is the single most off-limits topic of conversation? And people will raise their hands or they'll speak out and they'll say, death, divorce, feelings, no. It's grief. We don't know in our Western culture how to speak openly and with grace about loss. We have no idea. We sweep it under the carpet. And that is the reason for recidivism being so high, is we don't talk about sadness. We don't talk about loss. And what we do is we reach out for a substance or we reach out for booze or reach out for gambling or retail therapy or whatever it is to fill up that void that we feel inside. And, um, 30%, you know, like it's not, you know, like it's not, um, you know, like we're we're talking about like, this is huge, right? Like, like it's a third more of, you know, problematic situations. Yes. Um, it's a mental crisis that we're facing yeah. now. And, and, and so, 
what is the you know like kind of what what is the response from the authority about that you know like meaning is there um you know like are they acknowledging it well, great question. The, the statistic that I cited is from the CDC about loss over the last year. What they are doing about it, I don't know. I am certified and trained as an advanced grief recovery specialist from the Grief Recovery Institute in Bend, Oregon. The program that I offer and that specialists like me offer across the country and around the globe now, has been in effect for 43 years. And it began, if I may take just a moment, Alex, and talk about the history of this particular program I teach. It yeah, sure. Began, yeah. Thanks. It began with our founder, John James, and with the great respect and honor, I speak of him because, unfortunately, part of my own personal sadness is in the last two weeks, John James, who created the grief recovery method, passed on. And so with a heavy heart and all the respect I have, I speak of him for the legacy he left behind, which is this particular evidence-based, short-term, action-based program, which is educational. It's not therapy, although it has therapeutic effects. What happened is John... 43 years back with his then wife, had a beautiful baby boy, and that sweet little infant died three days later, and he was devastated. He had been a Vietnam vet. He had a weapon. He stood on a Santa Monica pier with so much deep sadness that he thought about ending his life. And he had a spiritual epiphany. At the time this happened, Alex, he had been three years a friend of Bill W. He had three years sobriety, and he was so devastated he thought about ending his life. And by the way, before I talk more about that moment, when he passed two weeks back, he passed a few days before his 47th year of sobriety. Just amazing. So he stood on the pier in Santa Monica and with so much sadness he had an epiphany. He began to research in bookstores what to do about his grief. All he could find were definitions about grief. And he said, I know how the hell I feel. Tell me what to do about it. And he couldn't find anything. So he sat down and he began to write. And the action steps that this eight-week, seven- or eight-week short-term program offers are action steps toward teaching anyone who's motivated to heal how to have an emotional toolbox to learn how to process pain. And the transformation that I, as a specialist for the last five years, have had the joy to witness in my clients walking through it is so beautiful to witness because people begin to walk from surviving a loss to thriving again. And some of the therapeutic results that they again and again will share with me are they'll have greater peace of mind and calm. They have a release of anxiety. 
They have a release of some of the addictive habits that they had had prior that they were using to calm their pain of loss, whatever that loss might have been. And it's so beautiful to witness that. And the other thing, Alex, that's important just to share is we think sometimes of loss as death or divorce. No, there is, in one of the definitions John taught me, Grief is the conflicting mass of emotions that we feel when anything familiar changes, any familiar pattern of behavior changes. We have grief. That means if a family moves from LA to New York because dad has a raise in his position and an offer of a new house in New York, he's taken his family out of their common known domicile to a new location in a new city and saying to his eight and 10 year old, Oh honey, honey, we're going to have a bigger house and you're going to have new friends and a new school. And these kids are in absolute sorrow because they're leaving their friends. Yes. And so even though it's a move for the better, there's great conflicting emotion about it. Or when we do have a loss, Alex, if When my late father passed 20 years back, I was devastated to lose my dear friend and my inspiration, a man who at 91 died 14 years sober. So as I shared with you before we began to record, it's never too late to become sober. And yet in the mixed emotions I had, I was relieved that he was out of pain. I had both those feelings. I miss my father. I miss my father. And he's not suffering any longer. And that's normal. Conflicting feelings, even about something joyous, like getting married. I am a senior, youthful senior woman who's married a second time later in life. For the last 13 years, I've been with my husband. And I will tell you authentically and with transparency, Alex, there are times when I miss my little baby 700-square-foot condo. Just me on my own, my little space, only Leslie's space. Both are true. I love my relationship, and sometimes I miss that single kind of lifestyle. So grief is about any change that we have in life, even though in our culture, We don't face that straight on or talk about it. And, you know, before we go any further, um, you you just talked about um, your uh, your dad. I want, you know, like I kind of want to do like a rewind the life storybook of of Leslie and bring me back to kind of the first memories of, you know, what defined you as you are today, you know, like, so, so, you know, like when I have guests that, you know, like I've, I don't know, like drank or, or use, you know, like sometimes it's their own use in their teenage or pre-teenage years. And sometimes it's, you know, like being influenced by a parental um, influence, you know, like, you know, like, uh, you know, abusing of substances. Um, what would you say was your, you know, one of the most impactful event and, you know, while, describing it, you know, like maybe draw me a bit of the family picture that, you know, that surrounds you. I'm happy to do that. Thank you for that sensitive question. When I was a little girl growing up in West LA, 
My late dad was a comp- his company's number one men's shoe wear representative in the 50s and 60s. He was always gone. So he was gone. He was wanting to bring home the bacon to my mama, to my older two brothers and me, to make sure that we had materially what he never had, that security in that way. The cost of that emotionally was huge. He was insecure. He was a good salesman. But what he did to make himself feel more secure was he drank. And so he was a highly functioning alcoholic man in those early years. When he came home from those trips, he was stressed. He was angry. He was volatile in his personality. He and my mother would fight. He would use his hands on my older brothers, never on me, but on my brothers. So I'm a little girl witnessing my father taking out his strap and beating up my brothers when he's angry with them, and I'm traumatized. And so at a young age, I remember beginning to use food to quell my unease, my dis-ease in living in my own house. I remember it well. And that was the probably pre-beginning to a 20-year eating disorder that I had with binge eating. I could smell the liquor on his breath when he came home. I never wanted to drink. It was repulsive to me, but I needed to do something because I was so out of sorts over wondering as a little girl, I had the loss of safety, the loss of trust in my own dad, wondering when he went on the road, was he going to come back because he and mom were so at each other's necks in verbal arguments. And so I described this to just share the chaos emotionally in our home. And with that, I began to use food. And so in those early years in my 20s, how many times, Alex, I gained and lost 20 to 25 pounds, I can't count. But what was so is in my mid-20s, I became an international flight attendant with Pan Am. I charmed the San Francisco Uniform Department into issuing me four-size uniforms so that whenever I was on a 13-day pattern around the world, if I gained six or seven pounds from binging, I could wear something different, another size uniform on the way home. That's what my early years were like. And then I had an epiphany and knew I was out of control with my world of self-care and began to go to OA. And then I began to go to Al-Anon meetings. And those were my early outreaches for gaining back a sense of calm about my own life. That's what my early years were like. What was the uh, brothers and sisters? You know, like I have two older brothers. Were they impacted by, you know, like the the very much? Yeah. Yes, very much. They what was their outcome? Other. Yeah. Yeah, what was their output of that? They fought with each other horribly. The eldest was the athlete, 
the younger older brother was more of a um, slenderello kind of guy growing up. So his big brother was always beating him up. And the younger older one would come to me for solace. So we were all a couple years apart. And their emotional insecurity because of how they were treated by their father was something over which they each had to come to grips with their own therapy and their own recovery. And one of the goodnesses in our family was my late mom was a very forward-thinking woman in the 60s when it was so not cool to go to therapy. But she saw the problems that we had in our family and supported each of us to have help. And that was a tremendous um, emotional support for both my brothers and for me. However, the eldest brother today, oh my gosh, Alex, with all these years later, my eldest brother is going to be 80 years old this November. And the anxiety that he still has and how he reacts to certain life issues is straight out of having been raised in an alcoholic home. And I love him with all my heart and just honor uh, the way that he is. And I feel gratitude that I was the youngest of three and the only girl because life was even more complex for him with his father taking out his anger on my brother. I don't know if I answered your question correctly. Yes. And, and did they, you know, like, did they wanted to, you know, like, um, were they kind of apprehensive of, you know, like using themselves, you know, like, are, are you know, like, were they heavy drinkers and, you know, um, so what they reacted to dad's drinking with repulsion and both of them are teetotalers. Interesting, huh? However, they develop their own addictions because addictions can be, you know, over uh, exercising. My eldest brother was athletic and he was like always hurting himself on the ball field because he was like always out there doing his thing to just get that energy out of him from the craziness at home. So it was baseball, football, whatever kind of thing he could do. And the younger older brother has been a workaholic all his life and works like 18 hour days still in his mid seventies. That's what he did to just like deal with life is work instead of relating sometimes to friendships and people. And you mentioned before we started recording um, that, you know, like he stopped, your father stopped using at, at, at a later age. What was your relation with him while you grew up, you know, like becoming an adult and, you know, like kind of, you know, like your, your, your academia path and all that, you know, like what was your, how were your interactions with him and how was your relation deep, you know, like deep relation with, with, with your dad? I, I so appreciate that question. I used to feel shy about discussing the truth of how it was. And today, because I've grown so much, Alex, especially in my own personal work in grief recovery and using the tools that I teach my clients on my own relationships um, with dad, 
because dad wasn't emotionally healthy himself in those early years, he related to me. He never abused me physically, but he related to me emotionally completely inappropriately. When I was five years old, he took photos of me and sat me with a towel around my little girl's body as if I was a girlfriend, you know, posing in a way that was inappropriate. He uh, would speak to me in a way that was flirtatious to my mother's um, absolute horror and uh, difficult uh, cause for her envy of me because he would treat me well, as well as he could, where he was angry with her because they didn't know how to communicate with each other till later in life. So here I have an alcoholic father who's flirtatious and in that way, it's like being the other woman, if you can get this the way that I mean it, in the symbolicness of w- what it was. Uh, I think I just made up a word. And I, I found that I was attracted to the wrong men early in life. So much so that before I had therapy and walked through my 12-step programs to heal I would say that in my 20s, if you put me in a room of 500 young men and I'm blindfolded and 499 of them are healthy males wanting to have a wonderful relationship with one woman, I would find by radar with a blindfold on me, the one guy who was an alcoholic or user of drugs who was a player totally uncommitted to having any relationship with any one woman, I would find him because that was what was modeled to me. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, like my wife, um, that I met like 14 years ago, um, she was my, you know, like, so it was my second relation, you know, like I had two kids with one previous, um, girlfriend and you know met my wife later when when we split and um it's no coincidence that you know for for some weird reason you know like we're talking about at least three hours car distance between my own sponsor and her she knew who my sponsor was oh my goodness and she you know and she knew you know like she knew people that i knew uh around the associations and the fraternities uh, such as AA and NA and all that, you know, like, so it was so bizarre and, you know, and, um, a few years later, my sponsor kind of encouraged her just for the sake of seeing, um, to do, um, the, uh, um, Al-Anon or the, you know, uh, Naranon or whatever, you know, like, which are, for family and and people that are close to alcoholics or or yes. um or, or addicts yes and so reluctantly she kind of accepts and says okay i'm gonna go so it's it's a sunday morning and <laughs> and so she goes there alone obviously and you know like she she attends the meeting and she came back crying her eyes out and she's like 
we're all the same. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how I felt at my first OA meeting. I cried my eyes out and thought, oh, my God, I'm so home. And we're all, you know, we're all addicts of some sort. (laughs) And and just the, the, you know, she expected, you know, like she had like a, like a, not a pejorative, but you know, like she had like an image of, you know, like kind of the type of woman she would find there. And she's like, well, I parked my car and, you know, like it's all luxurious, you know, you know, cars and, you know, like it's, it's kind of the people are fancy and, um, and so she goes in and she, and then again, you know, she expect kind of like that dark, grimy room and you're like she's like no it's full of light and you're like people are cool and (laughs) but when they started sharing and opening their arts you know she's like but i'm i'm like that you know i can i'm like this or that as well you know i can well she's you know my wife's name's mary and she's like well that's another mary here and (laughs) oh this one's a mary too and and like i said you know she came back it's like we're all the same you know like we're all you know, like we're all the same type of people that kind of attracts the same type of people. And um, at the end of the day, you know, like it's just it's just funny to hear you say that, you know, like even with a blindfold or even, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like you, you would you would find someone that, you know, like that has issues uh, just because you were probably you had like that maternal um, instincts so on high alert all the time and i before i was healthier emotionally i was attracted to men who were just like my father my mother would come home from a party with dad and she would say honey your father was the most handsome man in the room she would neglect and he was he had big blue eyes he was a handsome man she would neglect to say he was the most drunk he was the most flirtatious. He was the most embarrassing verbally to her and condescending and all of it. So it was crazy making the models of a woman, mama, and a male daddy that I had growing up. So I had a lot of issues to uh, uncover and discover more uh, calm and sweetness within myself internally over my early years, during my early years. So much so, Alex, that once before I was in my recovery, I remember being in San Francisco. This is like the middle 70s, way, way back. And I'm sitting about ready to introduce a close girlfriend to my newest beau. She's facing the door of the restaurant where Mark was going to enter. She'd never met him before. And she looks up at me and she says, Les, he's here. I said, how do you know? You haven't met him before. She said, honey, he looks exactly like the last one. He's dark, tall, 6'1", broad shoulders. He's probably a doofus just like the last one, teasing me. And she was right because I had this model of how he had to look, stand, have stature, have clothing, everything external because those were the values that were so false that I was taught. You, you, you mentioned your mother, um, you know, like how, how was your mother through all of this? You know, like they, they, from through the conversation that I have, um, 
mother tend, you know, like in, in the kind of dynamic that you describe, mother tends to kind of try to shield everything that's going on with, you know, whatever she does, you know, like it, it's kind of more, she, she acts as a shield to, you know, like your, your miss, you know, your dad's misbehaviors and all that, you know, was she that type? Uh, she ha- struggled with her own insecurities and my mom was envious of the friendship that I did develop with my father. She also was very um, insistent on my education in a way that I wanted to be educated in my own time. So after undergrad, when I finished and graduated with honors, she wanted me to go straight to graduate school, and I wanted to see the world. So I became an international flight attendant to her great dismay. And for nine years, during the time that I flew for 10 years, every time she saw me, she would say, Leslie, when are you going to quit and go to graduate school? When are you going to quit and go to graduate school? She was very insistent upon her way of how she saw life ought to be for me, to me. And that made our relationship conflictual for many years until later when I had some of my own therapy and grew to be able to um, express my feelings without anger toward her. And she toward me, and we had a meeting of the minds before she passed where we became um, good friends in her latter years, and that was a blessing. Um, I think it was very difficult for her to see how my father had adoration for me when she felt neglected by him, and it just was one of those difficult situations that was complex between mothers and daughters. And some of my therapist friends have told me that that really that's one of the most complex relationships on the planet is between moms and daughters. So uh, unfortunately that was ours. And when I would have girlfriends who were like best friends with their moms, sometimes actually Alex, I felt envy because that wasn't how that was for me. Mama had a difficult time when I didn't do life on her terms to be supportive emotionally of me. So it was a long, um, was a long haul. The bottom line of which was, I knew that my mom loved me, and that for which I'm eternally grateful was so. Yeah, it's it's um. Sometimes it's almost like even, like it's all much. It's almost like too much love, you know. Like when I mean shielding, like it expresses in different ways, right? You know, like so there's there's that kind of like, um, and I'm not saying this is the case, but. Um, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, like there's there's an effect of, um, even though she has her insecurities, you know, like she wants to be sure that, um, and it, it the kids are not impacted by you know like the the misbehaviors of the other parent, but it causes some other, you know, like problem by itself. You know, like when when you have a too too protective parent or you have a a parent that you know like. Um, even as you know, as you grow up and mature, you know, like you realize that, oh, you know, like you, you said it, you know, you said it, you know, like that your mom had her own kind of batch of insecurities and, and challenges herself, you know. So it's quite interesting. Yes, it so is. You you grow up and you know, like what was your path for academia at the time? 
you, you mentioned the, you know, like the, the flight attendants, but, you know, like, did you have, you know, like, cause you know, like, especially with Pan Am, you know, like I've seen and, and read about them, you know, like the lifespan of a Pan Am flight attendant was quite short, didn't it? Didn't it? Actually, for my story, I knew when I was uh, quite young and I met a flight attendant friend who'd returned from Nepal where she had been a volunteer and told her stories of working overseas as a volunteer from her airline, taking a leave of absence and working overseas as a volunteer. I was like, lit up, Alex. I said, that is what I want to do. I want to be a international flight attendant, see the world, and I want to volunteer and work for the Dooley Foundation, which had volunteers in Nepal, Tibet, Laos, and take a break from flying when if they accept me and do this kind of volunteer work, because I didn't want to be in the Peace Corps for two years and leave the States for that long. So if there's a spirit watching over Leslie all her life, in that moment, that happened. And when I interviewed, after I had been a flight attendant for Pan Am for half a year, I interviewed with the uh, Tom Dooley staff was the name of the foundation. And they said, Leslie, we would like you to work with us. Do you want to work on a Mekong Delta showboat inoculating natives against disease? Or do you want to work at the base of the Himalayas for four months in a government-subsidized hospital with children and infants in Kathmandu, Nepal? Oh my gosh, Alex. I was like, did heaven just open up? So off I went as a volunteer. What, what an offer. You know, oh that's- my God. It was like <laughs> so perfect and so wonderful. And I had an experience of my lifetime because... The people in Nepal, this is 1976, the people in Nepal were so poor. They had what they owned, they had on their backs, and they were so spiritually, beautifully calm and sweet and honorable. It was such a joy to be with them those four months. I had such an incredible time. And so um, off I went for that time. I knew in my heart that I did not want to turn 40 and be a flight attendant. I wanted to go on in my life. So I became a flight attendant when I was 24 and I quit when I was 34. And I, you and I could talk on this broadcast for another two weeks and I could tell you technicolor stories of the adventures I had in those 10 years. <laughs> wow. And uh, I just feel so grateful that I followed my heart with that experience. And, um, and then I always have been drawn in life between two parts of my personality. The heart, my heartbeat is service and my ability also is sales. So I have had, I'm not the woman who's going to tell you she worked for a company for 40 years and received the gold watch. (laughs) I had many adventures in my life, but the service that I have done has been the most impactful and my greatest loves have been in the healing arts. I worked with uh, hospice services for 12 years. I worked in a to give back because of my recovery with food. I worked as the eating disorders counselor uh, many years back in Palm Springs for a year with women who were 18 to 70 and came to our residential treatment center for 90 days 
to be there and recover and then walk back into their communities at large to have their life again. And, um, oh my goodness, uh, during that year, we had a tragedy at our site. We had a young woman take her life. And at that time, I did not have the spiritual defense as a young intern toward MFT, marriage family therapist, to deal with the loss of her without taking it personally. And I quit my hours at that time and went into sales in a few multi-level marketing experiences. And then I had help to get over that loss and return to service with 12 years of hospice experience, which were just dynamic, both as a social worker and as the manager of volunteer services. And I love that time because as a manager of volunteer services, Alex, I was able to create final dreams for our patients from a foundation nonprofit in Santa Barbara called the Dream Foundation. And the Dream Foundation works on behalf of adults in the same way as Make-A-Wish does for children. So I had the honor and the privilege of working hard, excuse, to make my clients who were our patients on hospice, if they had a last dream before they were going to leave the planet and they wanted to have one last delightful event with their family, they could have it. And that was provided by the donors to this nonprofit foundation in Santa Barbara. And so I made these dreams happen for people that were so amazing, like One gentleman was an American Indian. I forget the tribe. If you said it, I would know. He wanted to go home to Oklahoma for one last powwow with his people. And I made that happen and ushered him through LAX to his plane. And he returned and had an incredible week with his loved ones for the last time. It was so wonderful. I had a patient who had MS and she was a voracious reader. And we gave her an instrument so that she could blow through a tube on her settee on her bed to turn a page of a book so she could read her books independent of someone turning the page for her. I just made some wonderful dreams happen when I was in hospice that were such a joy to make happen for our patients as they were ending their lives. It was really beautiful. And it taught me how to go home to my then parents and help them make their wishes known before 10 years later when they passed, which is a whole new topic to talk about end of life. And I have um, no fear of having difficult emotional discussions with anyone about anything, but honoring my parents in that way was so beautiful because when mama passed, All my dad had to do was call the mortuary and everything was in its place because they had taken care of it 10 years before. And they did so because I had the knowledge of how to help them to do it. So my service out in the world at large has been my greatest joy. And the sales work that I've done, which would take another whole hour to share with you, have been um, delightful. But the service is really where my heart's at. 
you mentioned your dad, um, you know, um, kind of cleaning up his act much later in his life. Can you, can you tell me about this? Oh, I so enjoy your questions. Thank you so much for asking because the story of David, my father is quite inspirational. My dad became a volunteer when he was sober at the senior center in Santa Monica for 18 years later in life, almost he led a men's group and these men adored him. And this particular senior center back in the, uh, in the eighties was found by Barbara Walters team to be making such a difference in the Los Angeles area that Barbara Walters sent out a producer named Kate Winner and Hugh Downs to Los Angeles to interview my father and other counselors at this center to write a 15-minute segment called The Power of Two, where senior people like my dad, who were trained by a licensed counselor, would go into the community and be able to give their support emotionally to isolated adults in the LA community. And my dad did this and they chose him. Oh my gosh, Alex, they chose him to be a part of this 15 minute segment. And so here's my dad on national TV in the early nineties, willing to talk with Hugh Downs about his work as a counselor. And one of the guys in his session says, Oh, David, you're such a handsome man, as well as a great counselor. And my father says, what, me handsome? I'm 87 years old, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. And there he is, open and transparent about his recovery as an elder gentleman, talking about AA all those years later. It was such a moment of bliss for all of us who loved him to see his willingness to be transparent and a model of later recovery. It was just very special. So was, when Papa, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just asking, you know, you mentioned kind of the um, distorted ways, the distorted relation you had with him. You know, did did he, did he find time to sit with you and kind of uh, straight those things, you know, and, and, and make those things right? So what happened with he and I specifically and if that's what you were specifically asking me, I'm sorry if I went off on a tangent. So <laughs> Papa and I, at my request, in those years when he was a counselor, went to therapy. I said, Dad, I want to read you a letter I've written about our life together. And I wrote about how I felt diminished as a little girl by his behavior toward me and how he was flirtatious and inappropriate, and all the things I needed to speak from my heart. I read this letter to him in front of him and his then therapist in Santa Monica. She was crying, he was crying, I was dry-eyed, and he listened with his heart, and he said, you know, baby, I hear everything that you're saying, and this was so long ago, I have to tell you, honestly, I don't remember some of these behaviors that you're mentioning. What I do know is I love you and I never ever meant to hurt you. And if my behaviors did, I sincerely apologize for each and every one of them. 
and we kept talking through that hour. And it was uh, such a moment of um, wonder to me that he had the ability to be that honest and forthright. And it was uh, very healing. I mean, there's not much more you can say when this is said, right? No. You know, like like it's hard to argue you know, like it's it's the most complete answer of redemption I've never heard. You know, like it's just crazy. You know, like it's uh, wow. I, I was okay. so privileged, Alex. I was so privileged to have that moment with him, and also with Mama. Um, she was so forward thinking that after we had some conflicts, she asked me. This is so her credit. God bless you, Carol. She asked me to go to therapy with her to talk about us. And we did. And when in therapy, I said something like, mom, if you were so unhappy with him, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? And I'm all up in her face. And she said calmly, honey, I was X years old. I had no money. I had no ability to work as yet independently. And I had three children under the age of six. Where was I going? And in the way that she was so authentic and real, I just got her life in a different light. And after that, we had major healing as well. So I was by her side when she took her last breath. My father was unable to be there emotionally. I was there. And I feel privileged looking back on my relationship with both of these dynamic personalities that for all the complexities of loving each of them, I was able to have redemption with both of them. Wow. And how did it um, influence your own path in life? You know, like did you know, and did it? Because I had that ability of a gift for always being, if you will, present with others. All my life, Alex, people have told me confidential information, whether it was on the airplane forever back or it was in my internships uh, toward becoming a therapist, which I ended up choosing not to do and to work as an entrepreneur with the work I'm doing now. But I always have had a gift for listening. And mama said when I was six, I was on the phone counseling my friends. And so being uh, um, present and connecting with others' hearts has just been my ultimate gift. And so I knew I always wanted to use it in some form of counseling or giving back and that that would be the way that would be the most expressive of my happiness uh, in life, uh, in my work, as opposed to selling a widget or being a manager of a sales group. Even though I had the ability to do that and did it, my real passion is um, spoken um, by these words. Um, I know that I'm here to share, inspire, and witness personal transformation. And my purpose later in life is to gift my light as I am now, one-on-one 
and to international communities, which is what I do when I speak internationally about loss and grief. And I take great joy in continuing my spiritual involvement so that I connect to the heart of others when I'm in my work with great caring and compassion and curiosity. And this is my gift. And so the work I'm doing now expresses all of me in that way. And that's why I love what I'm doing today. And, and help my listeners understand, you know, like what is your day to day like right now? You know, like what is your, you know, like what is your, you know, like your current, um, so mission in life on on mondays every week i work uh, in the afternoon at the detox center in um, group and i teach my clients at the detox center about the myths of grieving and what to do about them and talking about the depth of loss that they have through using and drugs and whatever and we just have interactive heart-to-heart discussion in the mornings of my life today, I'm very committed to self-care and taking great care of my mind, heart, and uh, physical well-being because giving what I give emotionally in my work is taxing. And so I am a hot yoga devotee, and I um, go to hour and a half hot yoga classes five early mornings a week, and I uh, I do 800 senior sit-ups five days a week, <laughs> and I um, I see my clients uh, two afternoons on uh, Wednesday and Thursday each week, and on uh, Tuesdays I have a mastery group to which I belong, and I talk with my uh, colleagues across the nation in that group. And then I have a study day every Tuesday. I'm studying something about grief and loss or something about um, well-being or podcasts, listening to great people who are inspirational to me, like um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist uh, gentleman, and other podcasts that enlighten me. And on Friday, I have a colleague day where I connect with other colleagues about my work or life. And then the weekends, I'm with my husband and friends. That's kind of a synopsis of my life today. That's it? <laughs> I'm <did>. kidding. <laughs> my God. You, 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 you know, so you, you never skip a beat? I mean, like, it's, it's, uh, that's quite a busy schedule you got. <laughs> Well, I am, I believe in youthing. I don't believe in aging. And I'm happy to tell you that on May 23rd, this past May, I turned 75 years old. 75 years young. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> 75 years young. Um, can people find you online? And, and if yes, where? Absolutely. Thank you for that question, Alex. <clears throat> I spell my name for anyone who's listening and would like to connect with me. I spell it differently. I spell it L-E-S, like Sam, L-E-I-G, like George, H, like Henrietta. And my last name is Tolan, T like Taylor, 
O-L-I-N, like Nancy. And my website is lesliejtolan.com. And on it, listeners, if you have any desire to um, learn more about grief and loss, under the resource tab are beautiful articles about loss and grief that you can download and read at your leisure. And if you would like to connect with me, there's a contact form on every page of my website so that you can do that. And if you'd like to have a consultation, you can write me a note and we can set that up. And on my website, you can read client stories about other people who've worked with me and testimonials. And you can write and ask me about any questions that you might have about anything Alex and I have talked about that I haven't answered. And I'll be happy to respond as quickly as I can. And so for everyone listening, everything that um, Leslie just listed uh, is is found on the description of the episode. So whatever platform you're using it, listening to websites like uh, Spotify or, or any other platforms, uh, iTunes and so on. Um, if you look at the description, you should find a link in there. Um, uh-huh. Yep. Uh, can we add my phone number? Absolutely. I, I can put anything in there. Okay, beautiful. Because you have my phone number. And if you add that in the notes, that'd be great, Alex. Thank you. Because if anybody wants to, if they're more adept at texting rather than emailing, I completely am flexible about however anybody wants to communicate with me. Exactly. And, you know, it's a, no problem at all. Leslie, thank you so much for being part of that, you know, magical journey of mine. Like it was, um, it was a pleasure having you on. It was a great conversation. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I, I enjoyed it pretty much. It was I'm, really, really cool. I'm so honored to have met you, Alex. And thank you so much for sharing about your own recovery with me pre-recording. And I, I just am so about uh, 12-step programs of any kind. And in my heart of hearts, I believe that every human being ought to be in one. <laughs> yeah. Because it's yeah. less how to live life, right? And and your, your father showed that it's never too late. Um, you know, like there's definitely, you know, like there's definitely, you know, like an option for everyone to, you know, make the best out of life, you know, like that, that there's definitely life is much better than, you know, like some of the shit all that we can end up in. Um, and both emotionally and physically, yeah. uh, shit that we can end up in when, you know, when we, when we don't take care of ourselves, you know, like, so yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's always a message of hope, you know, like that, you know, like if you're listening to that and, you know, like you feel like crap, like there's it it can be so much better and i don't mean that that life's become a fairy tale that's not what i'm saying all i'm saying is that you know like we're, we handle it much better sober <laughs> never too late never ever too late my father is a great great example of that it's never too late to recover thank you thank you Albert. so much leslie thank you, so much. thank you take care you too bye-bye bye-bye